Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. So tonight we are going to be in part three of five. Uh, We are talking about the deity of Christ, a five-week deep dive into the compelling evidence of Jesus' divinity. Week three, we are talking about Jesus sharing the same names as God. So my first question is, so far, do you find the evidence compelling that Jesus is in fact fully divine? Um, And we will just quickly go over the acronym. It is so easy to remember. The H, what does that stand for? Honors. So Jesus shares the same honors that are only due to God, and that would include um, honor... Uh, worship, prayer, song, reverence, religious service, love, etc. Um, now the A, what does the A stand for? Attributes. So Jesus shares the same attributes of God. And attributes, obviously there are... So Jesus shares... Now I shared a new term last week. He shares the communicable attributes of God in perfection and also the incommunicable attributes of God in perfection. And that, that would be both things like love and righteousness and mercy, things that we can have in part under the help of the Holy Spirit. We can have part, we can partake in some of those attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes are things like Jesus's um, uh, incomprehensibility, his eternal nature, Um, things like that. So today we're going over the end. Jesus shares the same names that God has. And then D is Jesus does the same work that only God can do. That will be next week. And then the S, Jesus sits on the same throne as God. And that is how we will end this series. So, uh, so far, We have seen from the Bible that Jesus Christ is entitled to the honors that are due to God, such as worship, prayer, song, faith, and reverence, and that he possesses the essential attributes of God, such as being eternal, uncreated, immutable, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and incomprehensible. And that is a quote under review number two. So tonight, Jesus shares the same names of God. So this is one interesting thing to note, is a lot of people that don't know this subject well or don't know their Bible that well, they can come right out of the gate and just bring that accusation against Christianity and say, where in the Bible does does it just say the phrase, Jesus is God? That is a... Uh, oversimplified accusatory statement against a mountain of evidence for Jesus' divinity. Um, so, and w- w- one thing that I want to say is in this quote under, under uh, A, it says, the New Testament does indeed call Jesus Christ God, not once, but several times. It also affirms that Jesus is Lord, repeatedly doing so, in contexts that equate Jesus with Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. In addition, the New Testament assigns a variety of other divine names or titles to Jesus, 
such as bridegroom, savior, the first and the last. It gives Jesus all these names in the broader setting of a pervasive attitude of exalting the name of Jesus above every other name. If we are to be faithful to the teaching of the Bible, we must acknowledge Jesus Christ as our great God and Savior. So what most people don't realize is the New Testament associates Jesus with the term Lord literally hundreds of times. Not five, not ten, not thirty-eight, literally hundreds of times there is the direct connection between the term Jesus and the term Lord. And again, if we, if we aren't versed in this topic, we could assume that because the Bible doesn't say that exact phrase, Jesus is God, we can assume, but we can misassume, we can wrongly assume that the term Lord and the term God are somehow not the same, and somehow that is you know, proof that Jesus is something other than fully divine. Um, so the New Testament uses terms like God, Lord, and Savior to identify and describe Jesus. Sometimes these are used separately and sometimes together. Like we have the phrase, my Lord and my God in John twenty twenty eight. So here, that, that's a specific reference where he is saying that Jesus is both Lord and God. Those are interchangeable terms. So no human being has ever been referred to as God, Lord, Savior, Shepherd, Rock, First and Last, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Nobody. No leader of any other religion. There has never been a human being on the planet that has been given so many of the divine names that if you trace those phrases back to the Old Testament, they were undeniably referencing Yahweh himself. So the application of all of these designations to one person, Jesus Christ, often with two or more in the same immediate context, is highly significant. So page two, the name of Jesus takes center stage in the New Testament. Obviously, all of us can acknowledge that. that that's uh, super easy. The name of Jesus is everywhere in the New Testament. So here we have Mary and Joseph. They were in independently told by angels to name their son Jesus because... So why did the angels tell Mary and Joseph independently to name their son Jesus? It says, in this phrase in Matthew one twenty one, it says, He will save his people from their sins. And the, the, the name Jesus means Jehovah saves. So even this phrase speaks of Jesus' deity. The angel did not say that God would save his people through Jesus, but that Jesus himself would save his own people from their sins. Again, that's so significant. There's, there's no other human being that has been declared to have the power to forgive sins. And here the angels are the ones that are proclaiming that. So even in this early point in the New Testament, we see Jesus being described as having a personal destiny to accomplish a task that only God can accomplish. Jesus himself was to save humanity from their sins.
So Old Testament, it makes very clear that only God can forgive sins. Only God can save. And here we see in the New Testament over and over again, Jesus is the one proclaiming the ability to save, to heal, and to, and to forgive sins. So just numerically, the name of Jesus and the other titles and names associated with Jesus occur more frequently than the name of God or Father in the New Testament. So there really is a shift in the New Testament towards using the, the name Jesus and the other terms associated with him um, all throughout the New Testament. That is the predominant name used for God. So also we see that miracles, deliverances, and healings took place as the disciples spoke what name? The name of Jesus. So I don't have time or space to give biblical references to all of these things that I'm mentioning, but hopefully we've all read the New Testament or portions of the New Testament over and over again, and this comes, to, comes as no surprise. So also it says that baptisms were performed in the name of Jesus as an act of religious devotion to Jesus himself. And then salvation was proclaimed to come through the name of Jesus, which included the forgiveness of sins. And one of those many references is Acts 2.38. So the New Testament Christians were willing also to endure suffering and to die for the sake of the name of Jesus. How many of you are willing to die for my name? But in the New Testament, we see a host of people willing to lay down their life to defend their belief in the deity of Jesus. So Jesus is also the Messiah prophesied in Isaiah. So Isaiah affirms that the future Messiah would be God. And I'm going to quote two, two different passages from Isaiah. Isaiah 7:14. it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now you may or may not know that this prophecy was actually fulfilled before the birth of Christ. In part, there was a virgin that, that did give birth to a child um, during that time. So it was during the reign of Ahaz. But that was a partial fulfillment. We know uh, from Isaiah 9, 6-7 that obviously this was also pointing to Christ himself. So in Isaiah 9, 6-7, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So you'll see this a lot throughout Scripture where, where you have partial fulfillment of prophecy. You will see a part of a larger prophecy being easily fulfilled by a historical event. But then the prophecy will keep going and it will add details that are undeniably were not fulfilled in a historical event. 
So there was not that, that individual born of a virgin in the days of Ahaz, that individual was not called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, or Prince of Peace. So here we see this definitive shift from the Old Testament prophecy into this prophetic declaration of who Jesus was. And we see in this prophetic declaration a clear statement that this individual born of a virgin would not just be a military leader. He would not just be a physical individual of strength and charisma that would deliver Israel from their physical enemies like the Roman Empire, but this Savior would also be God. And that's where we get these statements that are bigger than the lifespan of a human. We see the increase of his government of peace. It will have no end. So Jesus, his eternal nature, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, that, that can't be clearer. It's a, this prophetic statement from the, day, from the day of Isaiah saying that Jesus will have divinity. So we also see Jesus as God throughout the New Testament. And, and, and follow the nuance. I'm going to have a section in the notes that says Jesus as God in the New Testament. And then there's also a section of the notes that says Jesus as Lord in the New Testament. So I'm giving you both uh, verses referencing both for a reason so that you can see that from both angles of uh, using both terms, uh, it speaks to Jesus' deity. So the New Testament does not often call Jesus God, but there are far more references to Jesus' deity than most realize. So some question why the New Testament doesn't explicitly say Jesus is God more often. Two of the main reasons for this is that the name of God was mostly used, the name God was mostly used for the Father, and the biblical authors were careful not to confuse people or imply that Jesus was the Father. They wanted to maintain a clear distinction between Father and Son, and also the religious roots of the New Testament was Jewish monotheism, and the authors did not want to undermine that heritage. So the New Testament authors, throughout the New Testament, they mostly used the term God to refer to the Father, and they mostly used the term Lord to refer to Jesus. Both of those terms point to, his, point to deity. Does that make sense? So they were purposely not using the term God to reference Jesus because they were keeping that distinction. Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is divine, but he is not the Father. So Jesus is proclaimed to be God in the Gospel of John. The word logos in the Greek and in context, it is clear that the word is being used as a name for Jesus thus declaring Jesus as God. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's undeniable that this term, Logos, is referencing Jesus Himself. And it clearly states that the Word was God. So in John 1.17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, 
grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And again, in, 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 in verse 14, it references the word being full of grace and truth. And then in verse 17, it says Jesus is the one delivering that grace and truth. So those are synonymous terms. And most manuscripts say unique son in the Greek for 1 John 1.8. But there are also two very old manuscripts that say, that add the term unique son, God. So there are some old, very old manuscripts that specifically have that term God uh, mentioned in the original Greek in reference to Christ. So in 1 John 1.18, it says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. And um, one way that you can translate this last verse is to say, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made Him known. So the only begotten God is Jesus. I don't have time to dive into uh, understanding the term begotten. That could be a whole 20-minute um, bunny trail. So I won't go there tonight. But you can rest assured that the term begotten does not mean that Jesus had no prior existence to his birth. He was, that was the transition from the eternal God, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father for eternity. He transitioned into possessing a physical body. So the begotten is that transition. It was not him suddenly appearing on the scene of eternity as if he had never prior existed. Anyways, there's 10 seconds on that. Uh, so, the Apostle Thomas also confessed Jesus as his Lord and God. John 20, verse 28, says, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. So again, the individuals that say, Where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God? They really just don't know their Bible that well. And, and obviously, that's, that, that would kind of be an aggressive way to confront someone, to say, ah, you don't know your Bible that well. So I'm not telling you exactly how to navigate that conversation, but it's true. At, at, at some point, we have to realize that a lot of the, of the surface-level arguments that we might have with somebody, that the going back and forth, oftentimes... We are overconfident and understudied when it comes to things like this. We can, we can have assumptions about the text. We can assume what is or isn't present in the Bible without ever really diving in and learning it. So in this case, when someone says, where in the Bible does it say Jesus is God? This is one of many places that does say that the Apostle Thomas had clarity. My Lord and my God. He did not hesitate to call Jesus his God. So Jesus is God in Acts. Uh, Acts 20, verse 28. It says, Be on guard for you yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So if you were just to read that statement, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, it's referencing Christ 
And obviously the Father does not have blood. Yes? Right? The Father does not have a body. The Father does not have blood. It is undeniably referencing Christ. And it says that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. There are... So as, as time progresses, there's always been uh, biblical scholars and historians that are uh, liberal and that oftentimes, you know, even seminary professors can sometimes be bent liberal where they don't even believe in the deity of Christ or they don't believe in the bodily resurrection. Um, and so there are liberal scholars that take a statement like this and instead of reading it just the way it says, they would say, they would prefer to read the statement as saying that God obtained the church with the blood of his son, which would remove the statement of Christ's deity. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying is, is there are scholars out there that do not honor the divinity of Christ and they will confidently undermine your faith. They, they will try to deconstruct what you believe about the divinity of Christ. Uh, so Jesus is God in Romans. Romans 9.5. It says, Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, the flesh, who is over all God? Blessed forever. Amen. From whom is the Christ according to the flesh? who is over all God. Again, we have a direct reference of Jesus to being God. And then we also see this in Hebrews. Jesus is God in Hebrews. Uh, in the opening of Hebrews, Jesus is declared to be superior to the angels and to be God. Hebrews 1, 8-9. But of the Son, he says, your throne, who? O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So this is, again, another verse where those that don't fully understand the topic, they, they will see a statement of, of saying that Jesus had a God that, you know, that, that, that Jesus says, therefore God, your God, as if Jesus had a God and therefore he was lacking divinity. But again, that's just an oversimplification. Jesus and the Father are one. They both possess deity. So yes, Jesus as a man acknowledged the Father as God. But Jesus as a man was also fully God himself. So by virtue of the incarnation, Jesus became a human being, part of the created order. And as such, he properly honors the Father as his God. At the same time, by virtue of his original, uncreated, divine nature, Jesus was and still is God. So page five, Jesus is God in Titus. Paul again affirms Jesus' divinity or deity in Titus. Titus 2.13 says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Again, that statement couldn't be clearer. It's, it's combining all of these terms. Our great God 
and Savior, Christ Jesus. So and we also see this in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a, a, a received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, there are many references to Jesus being God and directly using that term God in the New Testament. But we also see Jesus as Lord throughout the New Testament. And there, this reference of Jesus as Lord literally shows up hundreds of times. It shows up so often, you probably read right past it and don't even notice. So many assume that the term Lord is somehow less than the term God, and therefore fail to receive the overwhelming declaration throughout the New Testament that Jesus is divine. So especially after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the apostles and their associates immediately began speaking of Jesus as Lord in a way that strongly indicates that Jesus was seen as God himself. So the central name of, of God in the Old Testament, I, I said uh, last week or the week before, is Yahweh. The central name, the, the personal name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. This was the personal divine name. In Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and Greek, the Jews would replace the name Yahweh with Lord. Do you know why? They would replace the name Yahweh with Lord because they did not want to accidentally speak God's personal name in vain. The name Lord was thus the highest designation of Jews a Jew could use for deity. So the Jews believed that God was so holy that they were never to declare or speak or even write his personal name. Are you hearing me? So the term Yahweh, it's technically, does anyone know the technical, te technical term other than Jim? The technical term for Yahweh, what is it? It's called the Tetragrammaton. It's Y-H-W-H. It doesn't even have vowels. They took the vowels out because again, they did not want to accidentally say the personal name of God in an unholy way or to write it in an unholy way or to not give full reverence to God. So they literally took the vowels out. So the, the pronunciation Yahweh, that's just our guess. We technically don't even know what the vowels should be between Y-H-W-H. So this this statement that the, the Jews in the Old Testament, they began to not even want to write that name. So instead of writing that name, they came up with this other declaration of Lord. So they began to refer to Yahweh as Lord because they, again, did not want to use his personal name in a way that would disrespect him in any way. So in the New Testament... When you see the term Lord hundreds of times referring to Jesus, it is actually the highest, most reverential thing that you could possibly do would be to refer to Jesus as Lord. Because in the Old Testament, Yahweh was, was referred to as Lord over and over and over again out of extreme caution to not say his personal name. Does that make sense? So it's literally the opposite. A lot of people would assume or, or uh, wrongly think 
that in the New Testament, you know, oh, the, the only, only the Father is called God, and Jesus is, is called Lord, and somehow that means that, that he's not divine. It's literally opposite. Jesus is called Lord in the most reverential possible way. He, there's this direct association to Jesus being God. So Romans 10, verse 9 through 10. Salvation comes through confessing that Jesus is Lord. It says that if you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So it's literally the confession of Jesus as Lord is the thing is that spark in the heart that says you are now saved. So, I mean, how much more clear does it get? We need to confess that Jesus is God. And as Paul does regularly in his epistles, he refers to Jesus by the divine title Lord while referring to the Father by the divine title God. They are both divine titles. So Jesus as Lord in 1 Corinthians so Paul taught people to call on the name of Jesus in the same way that Joel taught the people to call on the name of the Lord Yahweh. So 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every, pe every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So this is uh, exactly the way we see that call in Joel 2.32. It says, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. So and I also reference the LSB, Legacy Standard Bible, where it, it says specifically, it will be that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. So that's the Old Testament declaration. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. And then in the New Testament, we see all, in every place, all these people are calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here again, we see that parallel. The Old Testament, this is how Yahweh acts. This is the demand of, of God. Of the, the, the prophets would declare, if you want salvation, call upon the name of Yahweh and be saved. And then in the New Testament, we see how, how do we obtain salvation? We call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in first, in first century Judaism, the affirmations of one God and one Lord were synonymous, refer, referring to the same divine being, Yahweh, the God of the patriarchs of Moses and of the prophets. So 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6 says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. There is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for, there, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So I referenced this verse last week as well. So one God and one Lord, those are so thoroughly interchangeable. That is a poetic way to say that they 
that they are both fully divine. Jesus as Lord and Philippians. So the Jewish context, in the Jewish context, the name above every name was without a doubt the name of Yahweh. Yes? Without a doubt, the name above every name was Yahweh. Here in Philippians, Jesus is the one with the name above every name. And the one who people will confess to be Lord, which is referring to Yahweh. So Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. He bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So this claim that every knee will bow and every tongue confess belongs to one of the most important monotheistic passages of the Old Testament and referred originally to Yahweh. That's a quote by David Capes. So again, I'm just I'm coming at this from every possible angle. That the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is that confession of Jesus' divinity. To confess Jesus' divinity is one of the most important confessions of your life. Like this is the Christian faith. We believe in the divinity of Christ. Salvation, and we're going to wrap this up in this last section, salvation in Jesus' name. So in Acts 2, 38, we see the call being released to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So they were following Jesus' command in Luke 24. So Luke 24, Jesus had already died, he had already been raised, and he was coming back to encounter the, the, to encounter the disciples over a 40-day time period. And this is what he said when he encountered some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, 45 through 49, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus is looking backwards to the Old Testament, and from the Old Testament passages, the New Testament didn't exist yet, from the Old Testament passages, Jesus is unlocking the understanding of his disciples to say that the Old Testament was definitively prophesying forward into the future, saying that Jesus would suffer, he would rise again on the third day, and also Old Testament was proclaiming that Jesus would proclaim, or that repentance and for, uh, for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in the name of Jesus to all the nations. So salvation is found in the name of Jesus. And I'm just going to go through a handful of verses um, that elaborate on this further throughout the New Testament. So Acts 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven 
that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Again, in the Old Testament, the prophets would point and say, believe in Yahweh and be saved. And here in the New Testament, it says salvation is found in no one else. So either that's a complete contradiction that salvation is found through two different people or it is referring to one God, right? One God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So salvation is available only through his name. And Acts 10.43 says, Of him all the prophets bear witness. Through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Like, it, this would be so ridiculously blasphemous. Like, if, if, if I started to just preach, to sidestep Jesus, sidestep the authentic gospel of generations gone past, and I'm just like, yep, believe in me, con con confess the name Jason, and I got you in heaven. That would be ridiculously blasphemous. I would be taking the, the honor and the glory and everything else that Jesus Christ deserves, and I would be stripping him of the limelight and be putting it on me. So the fact that Jesus was able to over and over and over again shine that light directly at himself and say, believe in my name and be saved. Repent in my name and be saved. Have faith in me, reverence me, fear me, worship me, pray to me. That is such a strong statement that he is divine. If he wasn't divine, he would be the number one blasphemer on the planet. So he was fully not only capable to say these things, but he proved his deity through his own resurrection. So in 1 John 2 through, through, 2 through 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. For the sake of the name of Christ, our sins can be forgiven. And then Romans 10, 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And then John 20, verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So this is a summary statement for really the whole book of John. Saying everything I wrote in the book of John, this is the purpose. I am writing to convince you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Like that was the message. That was the punchline. That was the, the, the concluding purpose of writing the book of John was to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we may have life in His name. What other name can we enter into and obtain life from it? Have you ever received life from the name of a musician? Have you ever received life from the name of a politician? Have you ever received life from the name of your favorite comedian? Have you ever received life from the name of your spouse? Here it says, we have life in His name. We literally enter into a new dimension of life 
by finding our identity in Christ, by acknowledging his divine identity, by coming under the proclamation of Scripture of all of these realities of who Jesus is, that he is able to save, heal, deliver. He's able to restore. He's able to transition our spirit from this life into eternity. And it's not going to be crushed in the transition. That's amazing. Like the name of Jesus is the, is the name that will, that will get our spirit man that's stuck in this body of, 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 of sin and death and complications and pain. The name of Jesus is the name that will transition us securely from this life into eternity with Him. It's faith in His name that causes that transition to work. That is stunning. How many of you are glad that you belong to Jesus, that you belong in His name, that in His name we have life. Because of His sacrifice, we have forgiveness of sins. Not because of our performance, not because of our, how much we know, not because of our efforts, but simply because we find our identity in Christ. We have life everlasting. The promise of a resurrection from the dead. Amen. So, um, as I said earlier, that uh, I w one thing I want to make clear is that when, when talking about Jesus and him being brought into this historic Jewish monotheism, that is not a statement, um, or let, let me say it this way Jesus being brought into the definition of God in Jewish monotheism is completely 100% compatible with the reality of the Trinity. So when I'm saying Jesus is brought into Jewish monotheism, and I quoted various uh, quotes throughout the last few, few weeks, I just want to make clear that Jesus is 100% fully in the Trinity, and the Father is different from the Spirit. It is different from, from, from Jesus. Um, and I, 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 I want to put the feeler out there. If that topic is something that interests you, I am feeling uh, excited about the possibility of doing a deep dive on the Trinity, of really diving into uh, the, the just what, what do we believe, what should we believe, what is the biblical foundation, what is the history of the, uh, the history and the development of Trinitarian doctrine. Um, so if that interests you, let me know, because in August, I believe August, I will be teaching another series, and that may be the topic, if it is something that you're interested in. So, Lord, sure. Hey, actually, we have a few minutes. We have questions. Anyone have a question? Uh, in short, yes, so her question is about the Jewish expectation of the Messiah were they expecting the Messiah to be divine? In short, many of the Jews are not slash were not expecting the Jewish Messiah to be divine. Um, they were mainly expecting 
the Messiah to be a military leader that would deliver them from their present oppression, which at the time was the Roman Empire. And for the Jews alive today, they are again looking for a Jewish Messiah, which is really kind of a, a, a political leader that would be able to bring them into like the restoration of the full land, you know, like the, the original uh, the original statements about the borders of Israel, they were a lot bigger than the present day borders, for example. So the Jewish people are looking for a full restoration, a fullness. Um, but with that said, th th that, sta that, that statement is not like 100% cut and dry. Like, because there would have been Jewish scholars, rabbis, etc., that would have had somewhat of a understanding of a div the divine nature of the Messiah. It's kind of like asking the question, what do Americans believe about XYZ? It's like there's going to be pockets of belief that differ depending upon what sect of Judaism you were a part of, which rabbi you followed. Um, for example, um, there was, th th this is a complicated topic that I'm not 100% versed in, but there was a sect of Judaism that believed that, that God, they believed that God manifested himself in the Old Testament as both God, like a, a spirit being, and also as a man. So they believe that God manifested himself as a man multiple times throughout the Old Testament. That belief system, my understanding is that belief system quickly changed once, the, the Jew, once Jesus showed up on the scene, once he died, once he was resurrected, and once the Jews, the disciples started to declare, this is the Messiah, he is a man, and he is fully God. Once that began to be declared, the Jews, because they didn't receive Jesus as Messiah, they recoiled and began to separate themselves from that belief system that there was a biblical precedent in the Old Testament that God manifested himself as a man. Does that make sense? So within the Jewish faith, even if you're not talking about, about post-Jesus Christianity, even within the Jewish monotheism, there was space for both God being a man and for the Trinity. There was space within Jewish monotheism for both of those things. The reason why it's so not very clear today is because the Jewish faith has wanted to distance itself from Christianity because they don't want to promote their people you know, receiving Christ, essentially. So they have distanced themselves from the historic teachings and documents that would promote the possibility of the Trinity being real and of Jesus as a man being God. Anyone else have any questions? Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. And I am aware. It really seems like there is a shift in the Muslim faith to being exponentially more evangelistic. Um, and the, and, and the, I mean, they, they hold entire conferences 
where they want Christians to come, and they want Christians to come forward with questions to question the Muslim apologist, and the Muslim apologist will then, you know, slap you silly and try to make you feel really uncomfortable about what you believe. So this topic is something that all believers should understand. That doesn't mean that you're going to remember every scripture reference and every whatever, but just understanding, like, I'm not simply exegeting three passages and saying Jesus is God based on, the three, based on these three passages. It's hundreds of phrases and scriptures and references. Um, it, 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 it takes effort to look at it this holistically and obviously, I, I got this framework from that book, Putting Jesus in His Place. Um, but I find that this is a message that we really, we need to understand it the best we can. And we need to know where to point people so that they can get clarity. Because, you know, the, it, the New Testament says that Satan will try to deceive even the elect. Satan will do everything he can in his power to deceive even the elect so that we deny Christ, whether that be persecution, whether that be a Muslim apologist confusing us, whatever, or whether it be us being um, enticed away by sexual sins or other things, like the enemy wants to bring down the church. So I'll pray into that. Lord, God, we pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you, you foresaw, God, these shifts in media, you foresaw these Lord, the, 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 the rising influence of Islam in America. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would raise up a standard against, Lord, this, this, uh, this deception. God, we pray that you would release clarity, clarity in the scriptures, God, clarity with faith. Lord, we pray that you would release voices, God, that would preach the gospel, not just, not just the this simple gospel in 30 seconds, but also all of the, the weight and the details and the scriptures, God, that stand underneath and behind those, that short declaration of the gospel, God. There's so much to stand on. And Lord, we pray that that truth would be manifested and made known to the young generation, God, and to all believers throughout our nation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.